BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi there, I'm Lauren McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, the largest online career resource built inclusively for women. I also have the privilege of hosting our new podcast, The Females. We're here to help with real talk career advice from CEOs, authors, creatives, and other experts to give you real strategies for building a successful career all on your own terms. Each episode of The Females is sure to not only inspire, but also to motivate you to take action and move your career forward. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes and follow along on careercontessa.com. If I had a really bad skating day, but I felt skeletal, I would still put that over a day where I skated well, but I felt fat. And that's when it became, with that flip was a really big issue because although you do need to look a certain way in skating, you know, you have to skate. Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to RealPod. I am feeling like this is a full circle moment in my life right now, you guys, because about four years ago, after I'd opened up about my struggles with disordered eating and body image as a female athlete, my mom, who I had confided in, ripped out a piece of paper from a magazine and gave it to me. And it was an article about an Olympic figure skater named Gracie Gold, who had come forward about her struggle with an eating disorder. I remember looking at the photograph of her, reading it, thinking, wow. First of all, she's beautiful. She's an Olympian and she battled an eating disorder. I just wished I could sit down and talk with her or I could someday meet her. And now four years later, I'm sitting down with Gracie Gold herself to have this intimate conversation about her story. I just want to offer a trigger warning because today's conversation will detail eating disorders. I am very grateful to Gracie for being so candid and honest with us today while detailing her entire experience with anorexia. However, I do know that can be triggering and harmful to those in recovery or those who've experienced similar things. So just a warning that you should proceed with caution in listening to this interview. Gracie's story is one of the most powerful ones in figure skating. After winning the bronze medal at the 2014 Sochi Olympic Games and being regarded as America's golden girl, Gracie hit rock bottom, spiraling into a painful battle with an eating disorder and depression. She did not even think she would ever return to skating. So this is a phenomenal story. Gracie will share with us today all about this journey and how she recovered and speaking out about her struggles and finding her way back to the rink. She was recently featured in the fantastic Michael Phelps documentary titled The Weight of Gold, which features a variety of Olympians who have struggled with mental health. If you have not seen it, it is a must. It is fantastic. I absolutely love that documentary, and she was great in it. One last thing I want to share before we get into the episode is my favorite line that Gracie most famously says about herself, and it is this. America loves three stories. America loves the comeback story. America loves an underdog story, and America loves the fall of a hero. And I am all three. Please help me welcome the one and only Gracie Gold. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am thrilled to have you. You just give me badass vibes. Like when you speak in interviews, I think you just go for it. You say what you're thinking. You're very honest. 
and your story has one, is one that I resonate with and has really made a difference in my life. So I'm just grateful to have you. So thanks for taking the time and being your first podcast. Yes. Um, no, thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it. And um, I'm excited. Me too. So let's just rewind and talk about when you first started figure skating. I know you were eight years old. And is that when you realized you were really good, different than the other girls in your age group? Or when did you start to realize, wow, I could be doing this at a, a high level? So uh, I I didn't have that moment of, oh, I could really do something impactful in the sport. I could really achieve the high levels. I didn't have that at the beginning at all. I grew up playing a bunch of different sports. I was a very kind of hyperactive kid. So I was always in sports. Parents just put me in sports. We tried other things like piano, didn't take to it. So all sorts of sports. And then I just really stumbled upon skating at one of my friends had his birthday party at the rink. I obviously knew what ice skating was, but I had never, the legend has it, you know, that I went when I was just a baby to two and a half in like New Hampshire. I was born in Boston, but I... I apparently hated it and cried because it was cold. I was two years old. I don't. It's like an urban family legend. But when I jumped on the ice at that birthday party, Springfield, Missouri, new rink, never skated, I instantly fell in love. I will say that I was better than a lot of the other kids that had just jumped on. Like I could pretty easily do laps around the rink. And I remember there's a group of figure skaters in the middle, typically on a public session, the middle is coned off. If you want to try jumps or spins, whatever, have a lesson. So I was watching them spin and I was amazed. It just blew my mind. And I remember even kind of trying it a little bit in the corner, but just going around and around and around. So when my mom came to pick me up, I grabbed a flyer from the front desk. They were just starting up their learn to skate program. Said, mom, it's on Saturday mornings. Carly, my twin sister, was horseback riding. Um, horses and I were, we social distanced like way before it was cool. We aren't, we don't go together. <laughs> so I had no interest in that. And I loved everything about it from the start. And of course, there were coaches and other people told me and my mom like, oh, your daughter's really good, really talented, especially at jumping, mostly because I had been athletic my whole life. But I did pick up on some things really, really quickly and just kind of kept going through the levels. And there were a couple of check-in points along the way when various coaches had said, you know, she, need, she needs to be in there. Like, she needs to come to the ring more often. Like, we need to practice more than two, three days a week. But the big moment was in 2010, which was a winter Olympic year. I was fourth in novice ladies. And so novice, junior, senior are the top three levels of skating senior uh, goes to the Olympics world's the highest level. So I remember watching in the stands, Rachel Flatt and Mariah Nagasu get first and second. And then in February, watching them at the Olympics and kind of calculating, okay, I medaled at my first big kid nationals for years. Could that be me for Sochi? So that was, that was really the first big moment that was kind of separated my, oh, I'm pretty good at this, but the Olympics, it seemed, the Olympics seemed like not, like the year like 2030 is not a real year to me yet. In the same <laughs> way that at the time, 2014 and the Olympics, the trajectory made sense, but really in my head, it was like, oh yeah, you know, 20, 2014 Olympics. But then it got realer and realer as those next four years went on up into actually going to the Olympics. So were you homeschooling at 14, 15 years old and your mom was on board with, we're going to go for this thing and you were kind of spending every day at the rink. What did it look like your very early teenage years? So that, that same nationals in 2010 was a little bit eye-opening for kind of my whole family. I had been traveling up to Chicago, but I hadn't really relocated there. 
to work with a higher level coach. And I was the only, I was one of the only girls on the podium and even in the top 10 that wasn't homeschooling, wasn't doing online school. They all were. And it was kind of that moment where we were looking at making that bigger switch to a full, uh, fully moving to Chicago, training with the higher level coach every single day and switching to online school. It had been a hard year. I did freshman year in public school and my parents were really, they were a bit anti the homeschool online school thing for a while, a little bit because of the stigma of like the word homeschool. There is a stigma around it. People do it. I've know people who've done it and they're awesome. I love them, but I can understand why there's hesitation there. Yeah. And it's a big, I mean, I think my dad played like high school football, but my parents weren't, they weren't athletes. They, so for them, the concept of taking their twin daughters out of public school into an online or homeschool situation to try to pursue the Olympics and figure skating kind of didn't you know, we didn't really know what to do with that at first. And especially growing up in smaller rank environments, it certainly wasn't as normal as in like larger training facilities where you have, where that's the norm. Like my dad was a doctor, my mom was a nurse. They're like, we don't know what the skating thing is, but they were aware that I was like pretty good, but they weren't, they weren't, do we move the entire family on the off chance that one of our daughters might go to the Olympics in figure skating. That sounds so random given like no one in your family skated. There's no, you're pressured from a parent. It was just like, you kind of fell in love with it. It's super organic. I just feel like that would, it's not typical for people that become Olympic figure skaters. Yeah. Cause that's the interesting. So my mother, so my, my mom is, She's an intense mom, but different than other, you know, like pageant or dance or skating moms. She's intense, I would say, in general. Like my mom is so metal. So she kind of was at that point where, because she's all about if you're going to do something, like really commit. Like she doesn't believe in half-assing anything, which is a great trait, but it can be anything from like a homework worksheet to training for the Olympics. The intensity is across the board. So she was one that was like, if we're really going to do this, we need to commit and we need to go in and, you know, do the things that all of these other people are doing and that would make training in life so much easier. So she really kind of initiated that. We just kind of jumped right in. But yeah, it really organically developed and we definitely as a family took it slow, but over the course from like 2010 to 2014, there were, we always had some check-in moments and just obviously just kept working the process. Won nationals in 2014, went to the Olympics, but yeah, a little bit different than some, some stories when it comes to Olympic sports. And right before this Sochi Olympics, you mentioned that that summer before the Olympics, you said it was the first time you started going down the wrong path. Coming home from a tour, you had a coach make a comment about your body. Do you recall what that comment was and how did you receive that message at the time? So I had I had a Russian coach for about four years and they are notorious for body image and weight, mostly because I found the culture of Eastern Europe tends to be a little bit different, but it's not as, I found the whole diet culture within the US, it doesn't, it's almost like there's not a right thing to say, because if you say, if you encourage weight loss, then that's bad. But if it is a performance sport, it's, I found it's a little bit tricky. So I do like that Eastern Europeans are to the point but it can be used as a negative tool. And I never had any issues with food. I actually ate totally normally. And I did tend to be a bit excessive. I will say things like not just calories, but like nutrients were of like no interest to me. Like it wasn't relevant (laughs) at all. Ate what I wanted. That was it. But then that 
that tour was the first time that I put on like a little bit of fluff, I would say. And then I, it was harder to skate. And obviously my coach summer before the Olympics had sent his, you know, main student off for a tour. She came back a little fluffy. Nobody likes that. And that was the first time that I started actually counting calories just to kind of see what I was actually eating. To be fair, it was kind of a lot, but it wasn't anything shocking. And then that's when I started really counting calories and really paying attention to food labels, mostly just calories like protein and fat content, sodium. Those things were not of interest to me. I was very much one of your typical calorie counters. And so I was obsessed with Greek yogurt, the 100 cups. I can still probably tell you pretty accurately the calories and of any plate you look at. That's how I feel. I'm like, I could see it and tell you instantly. <laughs> yeah, I could pretty much tell you just about anything. I will say though, th- so there are very few things that I didn't count. And this is, I don't know what this says about my relationship with caffeine, but I absolutely, if I was just making a cup of coffee, I never counted the cream that went in my coffee because I figured whatever calories those are, that's probably what I at least burns as I'm skating like three, four hours a day with programs. But that summer, I definitely started to take it to a weird place. I remember the first day that I had a thousand calories and I actually felt pretty good. And then the next day, I tried like 900 and then I tried 800 and then I just kept seeing how low I could go until I got, until I was doing weird things and I still had like my cheat meal on the weekend. Like I just fell really into your typical cycle of a slow development of an eating disorder. Like I'm going to start counting calories. I'm going to pay attention to this. And then soon it becomes an obsession and something that is no longer just, I'm going to pay more attention, but this is something that's a bit more toxic. I know you even mentioned finding like online forums of whether it was Thinspiration or things like that. As with anything, I do a lot like my mother, but I can really hyper-focus and I can become really intense about something, especially if it's something really interesting to me, where then I need to know all about it. So as I was kind of restricting, but kind of like tips and tricks, so to speak. And it wasn't, I remember I found that forum and other like Proana or like Promia blogs, but it was, I still saw those like people as weird. It wasn't, I wasn't in that place where I was like, oh my God, I am them. But they did have some useful tips and tricks which I still, on TikTok last week, I saw something about if you really like a mocha, here's a 120 calorie version of everyone's favorite drink. You know, I was still in that gray area where sometimes those are helpful. And a lot of people find those tips and tricks helpful. But I was starting to get more weird with it because right around, I would say the end of summer and then as I moved to LA throughout that winter that's when it kind of developed into something weirder because when I started to lose weight, not just skating got better, but like I got, I was validated for it. I was complimented for it. It was seen as, it was like this flex almost where if I got down to a certain weight, it was that kind of system. So I was okay. You know, I was skating. Okay. But then let's say as I started to lose weight, skating got better. So it was kind of that like reward button and it developed over kind of the next four years where if something wasn't going well, I had essentially trained myself to restrict because I was like, oh, this will make it better. If I'm thinner, skating will get better. And since skating is my entire life, everything will get better, which is crazy. But as with any kind of addiction or like eating disorder, mental illness, you know, it's crazy, but it was still very real and it was very valid to me. And for a long time, it actually worked. It's interesting how it plays into what we view figure skaters as. When I think of a figure skater, I think a beautiful, thin, bun in the hair, glittery, just the epitome of a feminine girl. 
And there's a pressure. And you mentioned TikTok. I made a TikTok the other day saying it's not about how you look. It's about how you play. And I had a lot of figure skaters and cheerleaders comment. "Eh, It's kind of about how I look in my sport. And it's very true. So how did that play into what was going on? Did you think about all the eyes watching you and how you look in uniform and compare yourself to other girls? Or was it purely for performance? So it was, it was both, but it really became more about how I, more about how I looked, but the performance was part of it. But if I had a day where I felt bloated, I felt big, I felt fat, my skating was impacted because it altered my mood the same way that if I was having a really skinny day, really thin day, it looks really hot, you know, your mood, when you feel like you look good, your mood does increase, but it's not not like mind blowing where if something bad still happens, you know, probably that's where I found where I had a really bad skating day, but I felt skeletal. I would still put that over a day where I skated well, but I felt fat. And that's when it became with that flip was a really big issue because although you do need to look a certain way in skating and you are judged ultimately more on how well you skate than how much you weigh or the shape. They do go hand in hand, but to even get to the world championships, to get to nationals, you do have to have a certain level of skating. So that's when that switch, when it became more important how I looked than how I skated, we were not doing well. <laughs> you mentioned even messing around with weight loss, drugs, and supplements to assist in this shrinkage. And what amazed me was you saying you actively reported it. Like you weren't ashamed to have people know like what you were doing. Was that at the Olympics when you were reporting that, when you mentioned this? I think this was with Players' Tribune. That was actually, we were still, and, the, and stress and how much I was skating, like that really played it. That was also a factor in just, you know, just shaving some weight off. I was very, very thin. But, you know, looking back, stress, like I said, played a huge part in it, how much I was skating, just gearing up for the Olympics, like comfort food wasn't, wouldn't have been comforting because it was the Olympics were looming. I had all these sponsorships and we had like already filmed stuff and qualified yet that kind of stress. It, it was after the Olympics that at first the roller coaster became a little bit more volatile because I went on tour again and I took some time off and went on vacation. Then I kind of got chubby and I kind of started entering this cycle where I remember I had anxiety about going to do something like a show or a trip or a vacation or even after a competition. I remember I wanted to come home as soon as possible because I didn't want to risk getting fat. We kind of entered into this more up and down and it was really a control thing because then over the course, I would say from 2016 to 2018, as certain aspects of my personal life and family life and home life became more out of control, I really used restricting with the occasional binge as comfort food because I could control that. I could control what I ate. I could control how I looked. And it gave me this false sense of security when so many things out of my control were spiraling out of control. Going back to this Olympic pressure you talk about and being literally Gracie Gold, the America's golden girl. I mean, the plays on your name are pressure enough. What does it feel like to have all of that weight on your back? And even watching some of your routines, obviously stalking your all of your videos this morning, I saw in most of them this really intense eye contact and almost not need for reassurance. I did the exact same thing, but looking at your coach, like I'm going to do my job. Yep. Like I'm going to do this. And like wanting that bit of whether it was confidence or that assurance, but 
How did you deal with that pressure and what did it feel like to be out there representing the country knowing that maybe you didn't feel completely confident or well inside? So the Olympics hit a little different than any other skating competition or events because it's really the only thing that the general public cares about when it comes to competition. And it's the difference between saying I was a competitive figure skater and I'm an Olympian. And that is, it's, it will change your life more than really any other success in skating. Cause then you can, cause then you're, you're an Olympian. You don't have to tell me, girl. I think you're, I think you're insane. Olympic human beings are just next level. I mean, to get there is wild. Yeah. So knowing that when you're about to skate, so you have two minutes and 50 seconds for a short, four minutes and 10 seconds for a long. So just knowing that seven minutes will really determine or could change the trajectory of your life. I felt like a lot of maybe articles and stuff got written and they always focus on the Olympic pressure or pressure from like coaches or pressure from this. It's just knowing that if, if you do something that you're trained to do in the right moments, that it will alter the rest of your life in some fashion. And then being 18 armed with that information, that's just a lot of pressure. And that's kind of why I was like, the Olympic pressure was different, but it wasn't always from outside sources. It was just, you know, doing the seven minutes of skating to take you to the game. So that kind of pressure, it's just a lot. And it's really, even like the world's best sports psychologist, you know, at some point that's just a lot to handle. And you just, I do remember looking at some people for reassurance but I also knew that they couldn't give it to me because I knew if I had done the training or not. And I had, it was just, if anything, the worst was like the two days leading up to it. Just, I I almost just, just get me out on the ice, just get me out on the ice and let's just see if we trained enough, if tonight's the night. Um, But yeah, that pressure, obviously having the name greasy gold, I wouldn't change it for the world. However, you know, there's a certain, oh, there's a blonde figure skater named Gracie Gold. It just works. You mentioned how they'll spin your name and say, gold takes bronze or Gracie misses gold. (laughs) Yeah. Having it be a specific color medal, which is first place when the gold, it is one of those, like anything less than gold is seen as just, you know, then the headlines, yeah, like gold settles for silver, I think was my favorite one ever because the use of the word settles, but really like I'm second, like I was second at junior worlds and the season before I hadn't even qualified out of sectionals, like nobody even cared. And now I'm just settling for the silver. (laughs) I remember reading that, like. Settle make it sounds like it's a choice. Settling makes it sounds like you chose it. Or like, I didn't do an insanely good job. And also it makes it sound like I was expected to win gold and I had a mistake and didn't. I wasn't expected really. I was maybe like at Junior Worlds when in in 2012, like I said, the season before I wasn't even at nationals because I didn't qualify out of sectionals. So then fast forward in a year, I'm on the junior world's podium. That's a pretty big glow up and not really expected. So to, you know, settles for silver, it does paint the picture that I was expected to win gold, which I was not. It just puts this insane pressure. Like, and I've, I've interviewed some Olympians before who say people like say, I'm so sorry, or they feel bad for you if you don't place the best in the world. It's like it discredits the fact that you are one of the best in the world and getting there is insane. A silver is insane. Bronze is fourth. And yet we look at it like, oh, you weren't gold. I'm sorry. And I just think that 
the pressure that puts on someone and then just the discredit to the accomplishment that is still there if it is silver is wild. And now at that Olympics, were people aware that you were sick or what you were doing to yourself and your body? Did anyone know what was going on or did you keep this to yourself? I mean, people knew that obviously I had cut a huge amount of weight. I'll say, I will say at this point, it wasn't super weird yet. I love how you keep using this word weird. (laughs) What does that mean? Like it wasn't severe? Well, as far as, yeah. So I keep using the word weird, like when some things, when some behaviors start to get a little bit, like if I just had a tomato for dinner, I would say that that's getting a little bit weird. (laughs) And where it's, yeah, like it kind of goes to a place that's abnormal. I, cause I, you know, I like to use the word weird as kind of when you're on that trajectory, but maybe you're not a hundred percent in the grips of an eating disorder. So that's, I use it as kind of the entry or even now, you know, thriving and doing a lot better. Sometimes I'll check in and it's, and I say like, are we, are we getting a little weird again? <laughs> Could we be? Can we just be normal and like treat our body right or interesting? So you don't feel like you were at the grips of an eating disorder at the Sochi Olympics? Cause I feel like in watching your past interviews and stuff, you've said it was like you felt that at that point it was it was severe. And you said like people turned a blind eye and you would have met them with hostility if they questioned you. So it so it was severe, but it didn't have I guess I only put it in perspective because it got a lot worse and more out of, even more out of control. So I definitely had issues and clearly was not eating a lot and wouldn't eat in front of others, felt uncomfortable doing so, only had, I had fear foods. I only ate the same thing pretty much every day. And I looked forward to coming up. This is the game I would play is I would have a favorite food like lasagna. And I would try to come up with the lowest calorie version of that possible using whatever various food swaps and like all this stuff. It was, you know, how I spent my time not freaking out about the Olympics But at that point, at that point, it didn't make what I call like the fatal switch when it was still performance over body weight. Like if I skated, it was still more about skating and it was still acting as a way to make my skating better as opposed to really one of my last seasons competing before I semi-retired. That entire season, I was doing terribly, but once I, but then I got super thin And I remember at least feeling like going into events I wasn't trained for, literally saying in my head, this isn't going to go well, but I am really thin. So in Sochi and obviously nationals, you know, we weren't at that point yet, Mm -hmm. but we were, we were sick. That is the point where somebody should have intervened, but didn't because well, because I was doing really well and nobody wanted to throw it off and I was skating really well. And it was, I'm sure that people just thought we'll handle this after she does really well at the Olympics. It's crazy how that gets prioritized over the health. And we've saw that. I just recently watched the weight of gold. Absolutely incredible. You were in that. And there's this narrative of so many people want you to perform that your mental health just takes a back seat. And a lot of you guys talked about this post-Olympic depression. Is that what you think the fatal switch was for you? When it was at its worst, I mean, it was at its most unmanageable and it lowered my quality of life so severely that it was impacting if I still wanted to stick around or not, or if I wanted to check out early. So it was no longer an eating disorder. It was depression as well. Oh yeah. Like we had eating disorder and like all of her friends that come with her. (laughs) So when I say that the 2014 nationals in Sochi, you know, we, I, I wasn't, I was sick, but I hadn't entered. I didn't find out that rock bottom had a basement is what I mean by that. 
And I wasn't doing even more crazy extreme things. So I really ran into issues with after the Olympics and I went on tour and I went on vacation and I put on a decent amount of weight in a very short time. But instead of maybe seeing as if someone who knew how to deal with eating disorders might see that it was kind of starting to do that super thin and I was binging for emotional comfort kind of roller coaster. And instead, it was just seen as, oh, she just couldn't really maintain that body size. She got lazy. She ate a bunch of food. That's how it was seen. So I, it kind of wrote me off as not having an eating disorder when in fact we were very much in an eating disorder. And instead, then I came back from tour and let's just say somebody very close to me, a professional like within skating, gave me their diabetic weight loss diet because they thought that it might help me. I remember this moment because this was devastating. And to realize that not only was I not seen and that my issues, that I almost was like so far disconnected from all these people around me that they that they weren't being like malicious. Like this person genuinely thought that they were helping me with this. So then I realized that the, some of the people I had closest to me, their version of helping me was so out in left fields that then when stuff got even worse later, people were like, why didn't you ask anyone for help? Quite frankly, because I did not think that they could. Yeah, the help you had gotten was was unhelpful. It made it worse because with that, if you hand a female or a male or any human who has just had a dip into anorexia and then essentially comfort binged to where they no longer look the part of having an eating disorder, and then you hand them a diabetic weight loss sheet. You guys got to see Gracie's expressions. I wish they could see you as they listen to this. You're hilarious. <laughs> you tell you, you hate to see it because what that told me was in fact that I was, that I kind of looked so out of shape that my body was no longer, like my pancreas wasn't working and I had become diabetic. I, my blood sugar was so high that I needed like a different like doctor. That's what told me is it, it looked that I looked so out of shape. It looked like I had developed diabetes since the Olympics. So then I got really good at cutting weight, but then the fat, like the faster you lose it, you know, it's, you're really prone to putting it back on. So that for the next few years, I just entered this up and down. And at one point, somebody also very close to me, because I was having trouble shedding some like summer off season weight, prescribed me a medication that is used typically in like morbid obesity. Like when people are morbidly obese and, you know, they're looking at gastric bypass surgery, like it's a very severe overeating. It's used for binge eaters that like it's, it's not just prescribed if you could cut 10 to 15. That is not, so I was prescribed and you, there. And you were given that, wow. Which then again, didn't really make me feel better because I was prescribed a medication for people who been so severely, you know, that in severe cases, you know, they end up killing themselves by overeating. Like the show, like My 600 Pound Life, for example, like that's, severity of it is I was prescribed a medication and but I what I mean by like I listed that is if you're in a certain drug pool within USADA you have to list medications anything that might come up in your system anything from Advil to Tylenol anything and then if it's something that's banned you just need to have a TUE or a therapeutic use exemption form 
you know, on file, but you list everything. So I, at several events, listed um, this medication, like Advil or Tylenol or whatever, as well as laxatives, which, again, I don't believe, it's not like it's USADA's job to, you know, they don't, they are a drug testing pool. Their only job is to test athletes to make sure that we are all competing clean. But like that workup should indicate to most people that there is perhaps <laughs> perhaps an issue, especially looking at what the drug is usually used for and then you being an Olympic level figure skater. Yeah. And like, I, again, I, several competitions where, um, I don't, I don't talk about my issue with laxatives very often because a lot of people think it's funny which I also use humor as a coping mechanism. So like, I don't judge them, but you're preaching to the choir. (laughs) Oh yeah. And so obviously people like their first question is they do kind of giggle, which again, I, I don't, I don't judge them because obviously the effects that laxatives have on the body. And then mostly they're just like, how did you skate or train or work out while taking laxatives? Really, the most important question is the fact that I had a very severe issue with laxatives for so long and didn't really end up with any physical repercussions from them, which is great because those, I mean, those can like end your entire digestive system. Mm -hmm. But yeah, again, like we were, yeah, we were doing some weird things. (laughs) Back to weird. When did you get to this place where you were having these bigger, darker thoughts about life. When was the depression at its worst? And what was that every day like for you? So uh, I was living in Detroit at the time and it was, I skated terribly at nationals, but I was real thin. So at the time I just wrote that off, but I had essentially my family and home pretty much my entire life in California had imploded and I did not have the tools or people around me or resources to handle it. So I sought a bit of a geographical cure, packed up my belongings and I relocated. I moved out and I moved to an apartment in Detroit. And over the course of several months there, it went downhill very quickly. And my weight shot up to, yeah, like about like the 170s, 180s, which for someone who's five, six and used to be like 120, you know, like in between 110, 120 average competition weight, like that is quite a lot of weight to put on and obviously people noticed and had things to say and it was a huge factor in I borderline became like agoraphobic where I tried to be seen as little as possible I did not want to see anyone or leave my apartments I was just really embarrassed and ashamed at that point to be alive which played a huge factor in thinking it was just, you know, just wondering if it was like my time to check out early. Yeah. So this is, it's the body shaming. Yeah. The body shaming had a huge impact on it and was a severe problem. And it was the most severe bullying I've ever experienced in my life. And yeah, it was to the point where I just no longer wanted, I was embarrassed to exist and take up space within the world. What changed it? Who intervened? How did you get help and get out of that place? So essentially I showed up at Team USA's summer kind of check-in camp called Champs Camp. And Throughout the course of the week that I was there, it was clear that something, yeah, something was amiss, but it was there were two people and one of them worked for the USOC, but I was asked not to skate the short program, which normally they evaluate both of their programs. I was literally asked not to do it because they had seen enough 
So I had a day off <laughs> because I was asked not to skate anymore. And I was up in the uh, kitchen and just hanging out. I believe that these two or three people felt bad enough for me that instead of just looking the other way, they were like, oh, we should help her. Finally, finally, after everything, someone's looking at you saying, we're going to help her. They, uh, and not just help me, but they were the first people to kind of look. And instead of saying you're overweight and fat and, well, sorry, actually what most people actually have, some people have said this to me, I can picture two or three different times. This is a great intro when they say, quote, well, we can't say the word fat anymore, but, and then they just tell me that I, you don't look like a skater. But anytime you, like a, an official within the Federation or somebody else, like a higher up, so to speak, or someone that's really close to you starts a sentence with, well, we can't say the word fat anymore. Not so, ju- it's just not helpful, I would say. I would say it's mm-hmm. not helpful in, just not helpful. I'll leave it there. And so they, these kind of, these three people were the first to wonder if maybe Most people were like, oh, you're overweight and you're fat. And this is why these things aren't going well. As opposed to these three people said, maybe there's something really bad going on that has caused her skating and severe weight fluctuations. And I mean, I was walking around with hair hardly brushed, no real makeup, extra large hoodies, sweatpants, not a pair of yoga pants in sight. This is a very big change from how I had looked for six years in the competitive spotlight, if not more. So these were the first people that thought maybe there was something else going on, which there was. So then I ended up just as we were doing whatever we were in the kitchen, kind of telling them everything that had gone on start to finish. And they were the ones that suggested and then helped facilitate getting me into an actual treatment facility. And are I bet you're so grateful that that happened. I'm so grateful that that happened. Your story is amazing. And I just today watched your 2020 U.S. Nationals skate. I cried, confession. Just everything you've been through, such a beautiful skate. And just there was a time you never thought you'd skate again. So after going to treatment, after recovering, what gave you the courage to skate? And something else I think is incredible and just deserves all the respect in the world is you are an Olympic medalist. You've won national championships. And so now you've like humbled yourself to climb up this pipeline, go to a regionals, go to a sectionals, go back to national championships and like reclaim kind of where you've been. And that takes a lot of courage. A lot of people who've been in the spotlight and kind of fallen from grace don't do that. So what encouraged you to pursue this and take this all on again? Um, So that's a great, great question. It just, it started off really simply where, so I, so I, I went to the rink that I'm at in Aston, Pennsylvania called Iceworks. So I just went out to coach for a week and there were some things going on in Arizona that I didn't love. But then I essentially these, this group of three guys that were then become my coaches and then now just two of them, but they essentially kind of talked me back in to returning to competitive skating. And I remember telling them like, Oh my God, no, you guys don't know how bad it was. I really hadn't jumped triples since the 2017 nationals, even though I was skating and training in Detroit. Wait, enlighten me as not a figure skater. If you take time off of jumping, I I know it's like the triple lets and the triple toe I was studying up today. If you take time off of that, is it really hard to get back into it? Oh yeah. So uh, yeah. So like picture, honestly, just any sport, like you haven't been, you haven't done the high level training in a while you had a mental health crisis and you are like about 50 60 pounds over 
could be more. I'd, obviously, at some point, I stopped weighing myself. And not just that, but my body shape had changed as well. So it's rather curvy. So your center of gravity, things like that are off. And then just to go back out there and try to do things that you did prior to all of that. It doesn't just happen. So I, I said, guys, this is not... I don't know if this is possible, but they were like, yeah, no, for sure. We definitely, you got to do it. You're so young. You're so talented. And looking back, I guess, I guess I just literally didn't give it a second thought, but I said, you know, like, twist my arm. Okay. (laughs) And then it was a very long journey builds the, I will say the Still, even still up until like pretty recently, the amount of body shaming, that was intense. I was called a clown. I was called a joke. I was called a cry for help, which jokes on them. I already had a cry for help. (laughs) I answered, but we just kind of kept chipping away. I just really like skating and working out and I love a challenge. I just... We just kept trusting. We just kept trusting. We just kept working the process until it got better. But I was definitely a joke for... It was the whole thing was a joke for really long. (laughs) Until you showed up at Nationals like, hey! (laughs) (laughs) Until like skating got better and I got back in better shape. And then some, a lot of people were supported from the beginning. However, there was that subgroup that was not and then suddenly was, which typical. I do remember there was this girl that used to skate at the rink that I'm training at. And I remember I, out of all of the bullying, respect this the most because online bullying is way easier, but it's much more rare that somebody so this girl, seven, six, seventeen, I want to say, just walked right up to me, looked me up and down. She said, you know, everyone here thinks that you're a joke. You're kidding. So bold. And you know what? Bold. If you are going to come at me like that, yeah, she walked right up, iced coffee in hand to my face and said it. She's like, yeah, like everyone here is making fun of you. I was like, okay. I don't know what you want me to do. I think I just said, okay, and then walked away. But yeah, there were lots of moments, Wow. (laughs) right? The audacity, but also middle school and high school, more like high school girls, if we recall, can be savage. So, but yeah, that, that, that moment was great. But yeah, so, um, I was even getting bullied by like 17 year olds, but we just, I just had this odd feeling that at least most of it would work out in the end. And I just kept trusting the process and it just, it was very, very slow, but it was a continuous path up, although very slow at times. And I just had a really good group of people around me and we just kind of kept going until we got back to nationals. And and you did great there. And so obviously you were trying to pursue a return to the Olympics and with everything happening now, that whole thing has been postponed, but are you still training? And is that still on your radar? So yes, yes and no, because I, well, when I first made the decision to come back to skating, it was never results. It wasn't result oriented for a long time because we didn't know what was possible or what I could do. It's way easier, you know, to stand at the base of a mountain and look up and say, oh, I can climb that. Then when you're actually climbing it, wondering, can I make it to the top? Like, is that even possible? Maybe my best is just right here. You know, maybe it's here. So we just, everyone, because obviously figure skating and the Olympics, these go hand in hand. I just was taking it one challenge at a time. So one summit, I suppose, at a time. And 
going from there, obviously the goal is to be amazing again and to win nationals and go to the games, make a world team, compete internationally. But first thing first, we're just kind of taking it very much like just that one step at a time. I love that. Just being the best version of yourself, best skater you can be. And if that comes along with trophies and exemptions and tournament appearances, then it does, but that's not why you're out there competing. Yeah. And I mean, it in like a very, not in, not in a like participation ribbon kind of way. Mm-hmm. Everybody's a champion, you know, cause no, there's only one champion, but acknowledging that I will be doing the best that I can do with what I have and with what I was given and knowing that these are the goals, but also acknowledging we have to do all of these goals before we get to that one is an important step. Cause if you just, cause I found that if I just look at a big macro goal, it's overwhelming as opposed to if I just start with um, like the first competition of the year and then break it down from there and then go from that competition to the next, to the next, to the next. Absolutely love that. And my very last question for you is just obviously mental health is stigmatized, but especially eating disorders in the figure skating world are so shushed, are so stigmatized, quieted. What empowered you to share all of this so candidly and openly and and talk about it? I think it's because people finally started asking. And people finally started asking questions about it. And before it was, you know, nobody, nobody asked. It was nobody. Everyone was afraid. And sometimes I feel this on like a lot of subjects, but it's, you know, nobody wants to say that quiet part out loud. And nobody wants to investigate. And I and I understand, for example, why prior to the Olympics and prior, you know, those few months heading into the 2014 Olympics for me, that, that it wasn't going to be brought up then. Like, I do understand because that might have been more detrimental to my mental health than clearly, you know, I was already having an issue and just kind of encouraging me and supporting me from the sidelines, you know, trying to yeah, just support and love, right? Because you can't, you can't save anyone in this world, right? You can only like love and support them. For me, it was more the after in my 2014, for example, and then then when my weight shot back up, it was just as if, like I said earlier, oh, well, she doesn't have an eating disorder or she just like fixed it. And like, that's fine. It was just never. And then it was like, okay, checked off that box. You know, nobody cared. Nobody asked. Nobody said anything. So the part is, yeah, the check-ins and like, like real check-ins. Cause there's a difference between saying, oh, are you doing okay? Are we having any issues in whatever mental health, whatever? Um, And then if somebody says no, and then just being like, oh, they don't have any problems. Okay, well, that's not always, oh, well, like update, maybe they were lying. Um, (laughs) That happens. (laughs) But also I... So people started asking and I just started telling them. And then I realized how little some of these topics have been spoken about, especially in athletes, especially in very successful people, especially, yeah, especially in like figure skating, not, it's that thing that like everybody, it's that quiet part about that people don't say out loud because I think a lot of people just assume, oh, well, you can't eat like to be a skater because you have to be a certain. Like it comes with the job is you're going to have to. But just with cutting weight or like adding weight, depending on maybe where you are on the spectrum, 
there is a functional and dysfunctional way to do it. So it's very much, oh, like they don't need anything. As if that level of dysfunction is necessary, and then let's say that it is, then where's the aftercare from obviously the um, just crumbling mental health that will be left after because to truly dysfunctionally lose weight for that long with a bunch of people watching you trying to perform, it's not shocking that a lot of us are left in shambles, you know, when we retire. And so if we are going to just say that you have to have an eating disorder to be a skater, which you don't, but even if that's true and like everyone kind of knows that, then where's the aftercare? Mm-hmm. So not only is there you no know, like so really I don't know why there's no support for eating disorders in sports like performance sports. And I think a huge part of the stigma is that it has to be not just the stigma, it has to be bad enough or it has to show or present symptoms in the stereotypical way for people to care. And I have found that with mental health across the board, but if you're not a certain level of thinness, if there's not like evidence that you throw up, if there's not any physical repercussions, especially if you're playing great, they don't want to, then there's no problem here. If all the things are true that you've listed and you're playing amazing. And you know what? Yeah. If you are six weeks out of the Olympic games, that is the only time I can imagine that by getting involved, a bunch of people getting involved in that person's grind. Like that's maybe too close, but Hey, guess what? After the Olympics, there is six months time with no competitions. That would be a great time to meet with that athlete and discuss some of the things going on and maybe some ways that, you know, that like the, whoever could help that athlete better manage what they're trying to do or the things that they're struggling with. But unless it's like, we're talking four to six weeks out of the games, I really feel like there's no excuse for not being involved because to think that it's going, that you're, that people are just letting athletes have such a dysfunctional relationship with food for as long as their careers go. That's insane to me. That's like, okay, well, somebody's crushing life. Because if you substitute eating disorder with, like, let's say a drug or alcohol or anything like that, that's like saying, okay, I think, you know, I think John Doe might have a heroin issue, but they're, you know, they're just really killing it at doing whatever right now. So we're just going to let them use heroin for as long as they're successful. You know, we can intervene after. That sounds like crazy person talk, right? But as soon as it's an eating disorder, well, if they're thin and they're skating, well, it's not a problem, mm-hmm. right? But if, but literally, if it was like, if you put in crystal meth, if you put in heroin, if you put in cocaine, if you put in alcohol. It's a right now issue. It's a, yeah, it is a, like, it is, it is a right. It is a yesterday. <laughs> Yeah, it is a how did we even get here issue. Well, I'm so glad that you do use your platform and you talk about it so openly. And one of the my favorite things you ever said is America loves a comeback, an underdog, and a fall from grace. And I am all three of those stories. And I think it makes everyone root for you. And I'm just so grateful for your time and your heart today. So thank you for sharing everything with me. No, thank you so much. And yeah, I'm glad that you relate to uh, America's big three, (laughs) just (laughs) stories that sell, right? And um, yeah, thank you for talking with me. Obviously, the subject is near and dear to my heart. And um, yeah, I'm glad that we could talk about it today. Hi, I'm Gracie Goltz. And my message to any athlete that is struggling or is feeling that there's something going on, I encourage you guys to speak out because your struggles are valid you're valid and you matter. And if those struggles are part of the journey, you do not have to struggle alone. There is an Olympics for so many sports, but there is not an Olympic medal for who can suffer in silence the longest. 
So I encourage you to reach out and to speak out so that you can live your best and most free life. That clip was from the Olympic Channel. So incredibly inspiring. I absolutely love that. There's no medal for who can suffer in silence the longest. So please seek help if you are struggling. To keep up with the rest of Gracie's journey, you can find her on Instagram at GracieGold95. And you can also support her by watching the new documentary by Michael Phelps titled The Weight of Gold, which features a handful of Olympians who have also battled mental health issues. This is a must watch. Gracie's incredible in it. Make sure you go support her and cheer her on. I love everything she is doing. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Real Pod. Don't forget to review, rate, subscribe. That would mean so much to me if you're enjoying the episodes. And also you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Real Pod for behind the scenes information, all that fun stuff, info about the guests, coming up episodes. And also you can follow me at Victoria Garrick. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a fantastic day. And as always, keep it real.